Well, open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. This morning, so if you don't know where Nehemiah is, you know, turn to Proverbs and then go back a little ways. Go to Job, go back a little ways there. Um, Nehemiah. This morning we're starting a brand new study through the book of Nehemiah. Today we're going to be looking at part one of an intro to Nehemiah. Our, our starting text today is going to be Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So let's read the, the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter 1 as we, as we get into this today. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, now some of you are reading some of these words, you're like, you're getting it wrong, Jared. It's Chislev, and it's Shushan, and it's Hanani. Here's the great part about reading names and things in the Bible. None of us are actually getting it right. You know why? Because we're not saying it in the original language. None of us are saying this in Hebrew right now. So, so I'm just saying that there's a level of grace being extended this morning. If any of you are looking at me and going, what's the deal with this guy? We're all good. Here we go. That Hanani verse 2, one of my brethren came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. It's not a positive note here in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. This book is finding the state of the nation of Israel in a very desperate place. Now, in order to help us understand what Nehemiah was dealing with here in these verses, the news of the Jewish people escaping and surviving captivity and Jerusalem's walls being broken down and the gates being burned with fire, to, and to help provide some background and context for the book of Nehemiah, I want us to spend part one of our intro study today actually going back further in time and provide some of the historical background that will be I hope, really helpful for us to understand what was going on in Nehemiah's life and situation and what was going on with the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital, really, of the Jewish homeland and for sure the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, of what used to be the southern kingdom of Judah at this point in time. And so with that in mind, what we're going to do this morning is, is begin by looking at the promise of the Jewish homeland that God made to Abraham way, way back in the day, and then trace that promise to them getting into the land, to them being exiled from the land, and then finally seeing God make good on his promise to bring them back to the land after being in captivity. And these are important things. If, if, if we're not super familiar with a lot of what happened in the nation of Israel in those days, we're going to come to the book of Nehemiah and, be, and, and feel really out of sorts of understanding like the ramifications of what was going on that Nehemiah was about to step into by the leading of God. 
So, so let's start by looking at the promise that God made to Abraham regarding the land that he was going to give Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And I won't make you turn there, but if you like to, Genesis chapter 12, we'll put this up on the screen, verses 1 through 7, and then chapter 15 of that same book, uh, God made promises to Abraham. This is where we first see these promises. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, this is before his name was changed to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family. I'm going to take you to Bel Air. No, just kidding. That was a Fresh Prince (laughs) reference. From your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham, or Abram, sorry, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, And the Canaanites were then in the land. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then just a few chapters later in chapter 15, starting in verse 7, it says, Then he, speaking of God, said to him, speaking of Abram, I am the Lord. Who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things, uh, brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation, verse 14, whom they, will, uh, whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So the, the promise of land, a, a place, a home, a spot to land, a place for Abraham's descendants, which at the time, Abraham didn't even have any kids. It's like, what am I going to do with all this land? Like, I'm going to give you to say, I don't even have any kids, God. Like, all, the only person I have in my home is my servant's son. Like, I, I don't have anybody. He's like, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. And God did. But the promise of land was followed by a promise of affliction in Egypt for 400 years before Abram's descendants would finally inherit the land. And this is what we find happening in the beginning of the book of Exodus and really into the first part of that book. Just like God promised to Abraham, his descendants did end up living as strangers and slaves 
in the land of Egypt where they were afflicted for 400 years until God raised up someone to help deliver his people, a man named Moses, who was not a young man at this point in time. Moses, when God called him to be a deliverer, was 80 years old. You think about the things in our lives where it's like, God, I'm kind of past the point. Like, let the younger people kind of take over. Like, God, you wouldn't do something significant with my life and maybe my later years. 80 stinking years old. And Moses is like in a desert herding someone else's sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. Like he's taken on this role that in the eyes of the Egyptians, and, and if we remember the story of Moses, the account of Moses, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. He could have very well been the heir to the throne. And, and he became a shepherd, something that in the eyes of the Egyptians was an abomination. He's out in the desert. God calls him to be a deliverer. To bring his people out of Egypt, that place of bondage with the goal of bringing them into the long-awaited land of promise that God had promised to Abraham. Now, as we kind of track the history of Israel here, I loved uh, something actually Paul shared in one of his uh, messages in in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. This was in his first missionary journey uh, in Acts chapter 13, I, I want to share what Paul shared because it kind of really gives us a, a solid uh, timeline here of, of what happened. But Acts 13, beginning in verse 16, uh, Paul it says, Then Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, uh, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, verse 22, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Paul follows up that that history by saying, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up For Israel, a Savior, Jesus. I just really liked how Paul really succinctly kind of shared about and traced part of Israel's history. He said that the God of Israel chose our fathers. He exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. That with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And so uh, we see that God God is the, the one who's behind all of it. The emphasis on what is on what God did for his people Israel, which which stands out really strongly in contrast to what the nation of Israel did and did not do. See, God didn't choose the Israelites because they were great, but because his love for them was great. You ever think about why God would choose us? God, why would you choose us? I mean, some of us, if we have an inflated view of ourselves, well, I know why God chose me. I've always been pretty nice always really liked him. 
I've sang to him before. Of course he would choose me. My mom loves me. I'm her f- she talks great about me. Why wouldn't God love me? God didn't choose us because we were great, because his love for us is great. He didn't deliver the, the Israelites from bondage in Egypt because they were just so worthy of deliverance, but because he's merciful and a mighty deliverer who had compassion on them. He put up with their ways in the wilderness for about 40 years. Not because he owed them something, but because he was patient and gracious and and merciful in spite of their constant rebellion and unbelief and complaining against him all of those years. And it was God who destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, who distributed their land to the Israelites by allotment. These were things that happened after God brought them out of the wilderness into the promised land by by using a, a man named Joshua. But after the death of Joshua, God raised up judges to deliver his people for a span of about 450 years that took them all the way to Samuel the prophet, who uh, was also the final judge of Israel. And this was a long span of time in Israel's history that reminds us that God wasn't faithful to the people of Israel because they were faithful to him. Because what characterized the state of the Jewish people, as we're told in the book of Judges, during this time that there was no king in Israel, was that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But that in spite of their unfaithfulness, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of all of the idolatry that became rampant, God was faithful and gracious and merciful and patient. These moments in Israel's history were not good moments. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar to what we see today? Everyone's just doing what's right in their own. I just I think it's good. It's right to me. It's my truth. It's my thing. It makes me feel good. I'm not hurting anybody. Yet God continued time and again to raise up deliverers for his people, even though their cycle of rebelling against him and rejecting him continued over and over. He'd raise up a judge and then there'd be deliverance, there'd be rest in the land, and then they'd do what was right in their eyes again. And they turn after false gods. And then, and then because of that, they'd end up getting themselves like taken captive by some neighboring nation or someone would invade them and they'd cry out to God, God, save us! And he wouldn't go, nah. The first couple times, yes. But 10 times later, come on, guys. No, he kept doing it. He kept delivering. He kept saving. But, but what ended the time of the judges was the people asking for a king. So God gave them Saul for 40 years. Now, not a great king, not a great moment for the people of Israel asking for a king because their asking for a king was actually a rejection of God reigning over them as their king. But after 40 years, Saul was removed. God raised up David instead and and through the line of David, who was part of the tribe of Judah, who came, uh, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, God was going to bring his Messiah, Jesus, as Paul shared. And I'm so thankful for Paul giving that 
that brief history. But, but when thinking of the things that led to Nehemiah's day and what he was facing after hearing the report about his people and, and about Jerusalem, the, the time of kings ruling Israel, which spanned about 400 years from King Saul to King Zedekiah of Judah, which was when the Babylonian Empire came and, and conquered Judah, what, what started great under David didn't last very long moving forward. Isn't that very true that like things that seem great usually somewhere along the way just fade and and just kind of get corrupted and and you know it's not not what it once was. We could say that true of our bodies as we get older, right? Like, man, when I was younger, I could do this and I could get up and I didn't have to stretch when I woke up. I only said that because I had to like reference the stretching thing recently, but you know. It, but our, just the decay of age, what, what was good once is, doesn't last. So after King David's son Solomon died, King Solomon's son Rehoboam became king. But, but under his reign, the kingdom fractured and became divided. Ten of the tribes breaking off, not wanting to be ruled by Rehoboam. And becoming the northern kingdom of Israel, that was what they were called. Samaria was its capital. And two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, sticking together, the two brothers, to to form the southern kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem as its capital. Now, I just, if you've ever read 1st and 2nd Kings or 1st and 2nd Chronicles, have have you ever read it and came away going, what is going on? Who are these prophets prophesying to? What kingdom am I reading about? Israel or Judah? And, you, and it's just like, what is, where is, what? Like, it's a, it can be confusing unless you have like a, a timeline with all of the kings. And this is, no, this is Israel and this is Judah. Like, it, it can be really challenging to kind of know what was going on. Now, historically, and I'm going to quiz you about this next week. No, I'm just kidding. The northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, which lasted for about 200 years after that dividing of the kingdoms took place with Rehoboam, they they had a succession of kings that were all bad. There was not one good king ever in the northern kingdom of Israel. These kings all led the people astray, led, led the people away from the Lord into all kinds of idolatry, and wickedness, and so God sent prophets to the northern kingdom in order to try and get the people to repent of their sin, to turn back to him. Even in that, God was so patient. He was so gracious and merciful. But ultimately, the Assyrian Empire came in about 734 B.C. and eventually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took the people captive and sort of dispersed the people into other lands. So that was, that's the, the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah, those two tribes, which lasted for about 320 years after that dividing of the kingdoms took place, they had some bad kings, but they also had some really good kings, some that were evil and led the people astray from the Lord and into all kinds of evil and, and wickedness and idolatry, but some others who led some amazing reforms and, and helped to turn the people, the hearts of the people, back to the Lord during their reigns as king. And, and God, just like with the northern kingdom, he sent prophets to the southern kingdom too in order to 
get the people to repent of their sin and their wickedness and their idolatry and turn back to him. But ultimately, about 120 years after the fall of the southern, uh, I'm sorry, the northern kingdom, starting in about 606 BC, the Babylonian Empire came. And eventually, after three separate invasions of coming and, and laying siege and and taking things and people captive over the span of about 20 years, the Babylonians finally conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, destroying the temple and the walls and the gates of Jerusalem, destroying the palaces and the homes, and only leaving the poorest of the land as a remnant in Israel. Now, God predicted way back Almost a thousand years earlier, when the Israelites were still just wandering in the wilderness before entering the promised land, that the Israelites would rebel against him and go after other gods, and that because of that, they would be conquered and taken captive. We see this clearly in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30. And yet, God still made good on his promises. He was still faithful to his people, even knowing that his people would not make good on their promises to him. And would be unfaithful to him. He still brought them into the land. And and even in spite of their continual rebellion against him throughout the times of the kings. He was patient and merciful and gracious. And he gave them chance after chance. Even as the time drew near when the Babylonian Empire was going to come under Nebuchadnezzar. and, And besiege and begin to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. We see the patience and mercy and grace of God through the messages he gave to them through the prophet Jeremiah. We see this in what's shared with us in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 11 through 21. I'm going to show you that passage up on the screen, but we're told there in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11, Zedekiah, and this was that final king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil In the sight of the Lord his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more, according to all the nations, uh, abominations of the nations. And defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them. Notice, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Verse 16, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets. Until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, 
where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. God had compassion on his people. Now that's an amazing statement to read when we've considered all the history of Israel leading up to that point. God had compassion on them. You ever notice how our compassion will have limits? You have compassion, but you, you know, it's like, you know what, at some point, okay, you're going to keep doing this, you're going to keep rebelling, you're going to keep being prideful, like, okay. And and our compassion in some ways, in, in some situations and with some relationships, can kind of dry up, it can grow cold. And, and those are relationships where maybe at the most we know somebody, if we're, if we're fortunate, if God maybe blesses us with a living to be 100, and we knew that person from when we were very young, like that is very short in the span of the, the, the over, you know, maybe 1,500 years or so where, where we're seeing this cycle of the people of God being promised things by God and God's wanting to show up in their lives and he's wanting to be their God and them to be his people and for them to be so wayward, for them to choose other gods that are just wood and hay, or wood and hay, wood and, and metal. And I don't know that they made gods out of hay, but maybe they did. But for God to have compassion even then, that just speaks volumes of who our God is. For him to go, I'm going to keep sending messengers. Some of these messengers, the people killed. I'm going to keep sending them. I'm going to rise up early. I'm going to send them. Why? Because I want them to turn to me. I want to do something in their lives. I want to do something in their nation. He had compassion on his people. He had compassion on his dwelling place, Jerusalem. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets, we're told, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. And this was why he finally brought the Babylonians against them and gave them into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Jerusalem, the temple, the homes, the wall of the city, the gates, all of it was destroyed. The people were taken captive, a captivity that lasted for 70 years, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29, if you want to read that. Initially exiled under the rule of the Babylonians, but then later under the rule of the the kingdom of the Medo-Persians who conquered Babylon, until the 70 years were completed and God's word through Jeremiah was fulfilled. And this is exactly what happened. Once the 70 years were completed, God intervened once again. He graciously made good on his word once again, and he brought his people, the Jews, back into their land. We find this in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. We're told there, and actually I think the, the very intro to, to the book of Ezra has these same verses, but uh, 2 Chronicles 36, 22 and 23 says, Now in the first year of King Cyrus, or Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. King Cyrus, interesting individual, was prophesied about by God through the prophet Isaiah over 150 years before Cyrus was even born. And he was specifically prophesied about by name, two times, God calling him Cyrus. So that there would be no possibility of anyone thinking, for anyone to think that it was all just a coincidence once it happened, because God wanted everyone to know that he is the Lord, that there is no other, that there is no God Besides him, we see this in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45. And it was because of this decree of King Cyrus that the first group of exiles in 536 BC returned to Jerusalem, led by a man named Zerubbabel. Try to say that five times fast. After 70 years of captivity. So 606 BC was when they were finally taken out of the land. 536 BC was when they were able to return to the land, 70 years later. God was faithful to his word and to his people. But while God was faithful to bring his people back into their land, as we saw from the beginning verses of the book of Nehemiah, which actually take place about 92 years after the first exiles returned by King Cyrus's decree, Things in Jerusalem and with the Jewish people were still not good. They still weren't good. And there was still so much work to be done when it came to the need for renewal and rebuilding. A a work God wanted to bring about. And we'll dig into this more and continue our intro to Nehemiah next week as we kind of trace it from the uh, first exile to the context of the book of Nehemiah. But, but listen, the, the testimony of the Jewish people and the Jewish homeland and, and even the return of the exiles from their captivity is that there is a God. There is a God. Only one God. And he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who chose and loves the Jewish people in spite of all their waywardness and rebellion and idolatry, who began to bring his people out of exile in the days of King Cyrus. Why? Because God stirred the spirit of Cyrus to do it. What can our God not do? He's God. The same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. He's the the same God who spoke to a man named Abraham and said, Abram, get up. Get out of here. I'm going to take you somewhere. I've got something for you. It's the same God who later through Moses spoke to Moses in a burning bush. Moses, who was not a perfect man, he had made his own share of mistakes in the past. Murdering an Egyptian, 
40 years earlier. Maybe feeling like, man, I've lost my opportunity. There's no way God would use me. That God would speak to him and call him and appoint him and use him to be a deliverer. That God could part the Red Sea. That God would take the people into the promised land. That God would preserve these people through all of the years, all the generations. Leading them into captivity by the Babylonians, but then ultimately moving upon a Gentile pagan king's heart to say, you know what? God's given this all to me. And you know what? He's commanded. Isn't that interesting language? God's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem. So who wants to go? He gives this decree throughout all the land. You guys have been here for 70 years. Some of you... You didn't even grow up in Jerusalem. You, were, you, you grew up here in Babylon. Who wants to go back? What an amazing thing to, to move upon King Cyrus's heart to make that decree. Why? Because God is real. He's, he's the real living God. The one true God, Yahweh, also ultimately brought about the opportunity for deliverance, for salvation for all people. As Paul shared about in his message, by sending his son Jesus into the world to die for us so that we could become his people, part of his family. For those who put their faith in Jesus and what Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, where now because of Jesus' free gift of salvation, we've been given a new homeland, heaven, promised to us by God himself. And Jesus, out of his own mouth, has gone there to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we would be also. And you think about this land, it's like, well, that was great for the nation of Israel, but what about for us? We also have a land. We have a home. We have a new kingdom and family to be a part of that God has invited us into by his grace. And I'm so thankful that God has done that for us. But I'm gonna have the worship team come back up. Like Israel's history, at least different aspects of it, resembles in a lot of ways our history, right? Pride, Rebellion, rejection, unbelief, complaining, straying from the Lord, doing what's right in our own eyes. I mean, we might look at some of these things this morning and be like, wow, they're just, they were jacked up. And then we're like, look in the mirror and we're like, oh, actually, I'm jacked up. These things are true, have been true of me at different points in my life. Maybe. Maybe all of these things are true about me right now. But God's track record shown in the history of the Israelites should speak volumes to us today, should encourage us and stir in us even greater love and worship of our God because he has not changed. He's still gracious. He's still, still merciful and patient and faithful and ready to forgive. And he's still pursuing after the hearts of people Today, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who we've looked at, who did all of these things, is our God. He's the same God. And I think in some ways, as we consider the story of the Israelites this morning and some of their history, you know, not just to be purely historical and educational and and informational for us this morning, but to go, God, that's, if you did these things with them, if you pursued after them, if you were gracious and patient and merciful with them, then God, you're the same way with us today. And, And maybe in those places where maybe even for some of us this morning, and maybe we know the Lord personally, but maybe we've been doing what's right in our own eyes. Maybe there's been some pride and rebellion and some hardness towards the Lord. And even this morning that God, maybe through the example of the Israelites or the example of God intervening in their lives, his faithfulness that would maybe be used by the Lord in our lives this morning to say, hey, like there's some repentance that's necessary in our lives. There's some things maybe that we need to confess before the Lord. Maybe there's some areas where we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Maybe there's some idolatry that I've allowed to creep into my life. And God's going, look, I alone am God. I alone am to be worshiped by you. And that we'd be able to come back to that place and, and, and be reminded that God's going, I want you. I'm after you. I love you. I have grace for you today. I have mercy and forgiveness for you. And he has that for me, for all of us. But but maybe at the same time, even as we've looked at some of these things this morning, there's maybe there's even someone here today where you're going, man, you know what? The, the, the story of the Israelites is my story. And maybe this morning for you, it's not a story of, well, God brought me out of those things. Maybe this morning God's going, you're still in them and I want to bring you out. To be able to recognize this morning, if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Jesus Christ, asked him to be Savior and Lord and God, to to forgive of sins and and, and to to be Lord and King of of your life. Look, that opportunity is, is for you today. The invitation of God stands true today to come to him that if any will put their faith in him, that he will be faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse and to save. But you've got to humble yourself before the Lord. And so if that's anybody here today, this is a safe place to be able to go, that's me. I need Jesus. And if that is you, would you stand where you're at? so I can pray for you, so that we can pray for you this morning, that God would do that work in your life, that you would go from being in darkness to being in the marvelous light of God, that you would go from someone who's not received God's mercy to to receiving it, to being someone who is not a part of the people of God to being a part of the people of God. Is that anyone this morning? and you need the salvation of Jesus, would you stand? This is, this is your opportunity. You're not promised another moment. You have now. Maybe for some this morning, it's, it's not a, a first-time 
surrender. Maybe you've got, you're looking at your own life this morning and you're going, man, I've, I've got some of that waywardness. And this morning, God's just asking you to, to humble yourself before him once again. That he wants to meet you where you're at, to, to bring forgiveness, to bring growth, to bring transformation in your life. I just encourage you, if that's you, to, to really press into the Lord this morning, even during these times of, of, of praising him. But, but let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we've considered a lot of things this morning in order to help us to understand this book of Nehemiah that we're, we're getting into. But God, I, I pray for each and every one of us. Lord, you know where our hearts are at. And Lord, for any who may have joined us here in person or even have joined online who don't have a personal knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, who have not opened their heart to, to you, Jesus, even now, Lord, would you be speaking to them? Would you be convicting them? Would you be convincing them of their need for Jesus? And, and if that's anyone that even in their own hearts this morning, they would just cry out to the Lord and say, God, I'm a, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation. And Jesus, I believe you are that Savior. Jesus, be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. Forgive me. Lord God, I repent of my sin this morning and I turn to you by faith. Father, would you seal me with your spirit? Would you take up residence in my heart? And God, would you give me grace and the power of your spirit to live for you? And I, I just encourage you, if you as you've confessed with your mouth that, that Jesus is Lord, as you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. Maybe for others that this morning you're needing to, you're needing God just to just do a, a fresh work in your life. Maybe you felt the devastation of sin. Maybe you feel in some ways like God's allowed parts of your life to kind of go into captivity. And this morning, he's calling you back to himself. I just encourage you to not harden your voice, harden your heart to the voice of the Lord, but just to come back once again and humble yourself and just to ask him to forgive and to cleanse you, to restore the joy of your salvation, to restore that right relationship with him. That God, as we reflect on your word as we sing these songs of praise, Lord, as we take of the communion elements, God, as we have opportunity to, to be prayed for by, by the prayer counselors, God, would you continue to move in this place, Lord, move in our hearts. God, we give you full reign and control in our time, in our lives individually. And so, God, would you continue to move by your spirit, Lord, in this time, we thank you, Father, for your compassion, your great love for us, Lord, that you would desire us at all and call us your own. So, God, we sing these songs to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.